0: I am starting a, a mini-series, a mini two-part series, only in Central. So um, the Western and North are missing out or not missing out. Like, it depends how it goes, you can tell me at the end, but I will be preaching two weeks in a row here. I very, very rarely do that, so uh, you are in for a treat. But I am going to be preaching on the Book of Esther. So a little two-parter in the Book of Esther and it's part of our series called By Faith, and By Faith series is really this idea that we take biblical characters, biblical books throughout the, throughout the Bible, uh, and, and we take people who have inspiring faith, and we go, what is it about that person's life? And so I'm going to be trying to cover the whole of Esther in two weeks, which is about 10 chapters, so hold on. Now, I never know whether to call Esther a heroine or a hero. So I'm going to go with a heroine hero. And the story of Esther really has all the making. Some of you, I just want to say this at the beginning, some of you are going to be really familiar with this story and will have spent much time, for some of you... You haven't even heard of Esther and you didn't know there was a book called Esther. So we have a whole load of different amounts of knowledge about Esther in the room. So part of what I have to do in beginning this is get us into the same place to understand what's going on in the story. But Esther, the book of Esther, has all the hallmarks of a blockbuster film. You've got heroes, villains, drama, suspense, romance, intrigue, and a happy ending. So sorry if that spoils it for you, but... um, now when you think about a blockbuster, blockbusters were actually made for me, that I was the person that they were talking about. When they, when they look for the person that loves a blockbuster, it's me, like I am that person. I absolutely love them because I do need a happy ending at the end of every story. My wife and me do not have the same film taste, but Esther would make a great blockbuster. And it's the story really of how one woman saves a nation. And how God used the courage, the influence, the beauty of Esther to protect God's people. Now, for those of you that are unfamiliar with this book, this book is unlike any other book in the Bible. For instance, God is never mentioned throughout the whole 10 chapters, which is quite unusual in a biblical book. But this is actually known as a brilliant literary technique. And a guy called Tim Mackey, who... um, oversees the Bible project which is a brilliant resource for any of you that haven't come across that he says this about Esther he says it's an invitation to read this story story looking for God's activity there are signs of it everywhere the story is full of coincidences and ironic reversals and it forces the reader to see God at work orchestrating all things and so I've if I was I've got a title for the talk and it's God is always working whether we can see it or not whether we can feel it or not. And you might have walked in here today being like, where is God? God, where are you in my circumstances? I do not know what's going on. And I would want Esther to be a deeply, deeply encouraging book to you, that although you may not feel it and although you may not see it, God is always at work. And that's what we see in the book of Esther. Suddenly you're like, oh, God, now it makes sense. But for a long time, it doesn't. To give a bit of context, this story is set 100 years after something called the Babylonian exile. I use that word regularly. Um, but the Babylonian exile is really this moment in Israel's history where they're conquered and they're attacked and they're carried away um, by the Babylonians. And so um, they effectively, the Jewish nation in this moment is dispersed across Persia. And what would happen is they would take your brightest and your best and take that out of the place where they were and relocate it. So the people of God are just all over the place. They're all in different spaces, different communities. And we pick up this Jewish community living in Susa, the Persian capital. And that's where the story finds its beginning. Let me give you a few key parts of the story. There are four key characters that you need to know about. There is Esther, there is Mordecai. These are like the hero and heroine of the story and then you have the king of Persia who is called Xerxes and he's pretty weak generally actually through this story he doesn't come out well and then you also have the cunning villain the Persian official Haman so those kind of the four main characters in the story and the story starts with King Xerxes having 180 days of showing everybody how incredibly rich he is so, he was not insecure at all. That's the thing you need to know about Xerxes. Um, it didn't have a problem with insecurity. But can you imagine 180? I mean, it's half a year of showing people how rich you are. It's pretty ridiculous, isn't it? And so, the culmination of this 180 days is he decides to do a banquet for seven days, a seven-day feast. I think the equivalent would be an all-you-can-eat-in-Magaluf now. LAUGHTER um, you know, all you can drink, all you can eat in a week away. That was the closest I could come to a week-long banquet in our context. But yeah, I'm always trying to bring things into our context. Can you see how I've done that? <laughs> uh, anyway, at the banquet, Xerxes gets ridiculously drunk, and he was probably drunk for about seven days, actually. And he begins to boast about how he has the most beautiful queen, Queen Vashti. And in his drunken state, he thinks it's a brilliant idea to invite out his queen to show all of his mates, basically, and everybody that he's trying to impress, how beautiful Queen Vashti is. Now, unsurprisingly, Queen Vashti turns around and is like, I really do not want to come to this invitation. Thank you so much, but I'm not coming. And it causes crisis. At this time, you'd have to realize it's a shame on a culture. So the queen turning around and saying, I'm not coming was a really big deal because it undermined the king's authority. So he gets together all his cronies, maybe the wrong word, council. Let's go with that. Uh, He gets together his council and they, they have a chat about it. And they decide to strip Queen Vashti of her title and her queenship. They're like, you know, because of what you've done, you are no longer the queen, and then hence starts the next bit so the search for a new queen is on commissioners are sent out into every part of the Persian empire to find the most beautiful maidens to bring them to the king's harem probably and so from across the nation they come and then there is a year-long beauty pageant whereby they all try and win the favor of the king We pick it up in chapter 2, verse 17. It says, Now the king was attracted to Esther more than to any of the other women, and she won his favor and approval more than any of the other virgins. So he set a royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. And the king gave a great banquet. There we go again. (laughs) He's banqueting again. Esther's banquet for all his nobles and officials. And he proclaimed a holiday throughout the provinces and distributed gifts with royal liberality story feels a bit shallow at this point doesn't it <laughs> if we're honest it's a bit disappointing it's like man alive this feels like our culture this is so disappointing you know the the beauty pageant we've seen it all before hasn't it? it's scarily familiar to watch we to all that we see on telly and you can even imagine the backstory of being of Esther being told because actually Esther had lost her parents um, at a young age and Mordecai who is this other character in the story is her uncle he is her niece Uh, she is his niece and so her uncle Mordecai looks after Esther now a really key aspect of this story that you need to know is that up to this point Esther never mentions to the king that she's Jewish so Mordecai and Esther decide to keep this secret so this is never mentioned and the and the story is beginning to heat up. This is where the villain Haman enters the story. Haman, in chapter three, becomes the number two in the kingdom. And the king begins to honour him above everybody else. And so Haman, this, all of this power goes to his head and he decides, do you know what, I want everybody to bow down to me because I've got all the power. Which was fine for most people, they just went along with it. But Mordecai, who is Jewish, at this point goes, I cannot bow to you, Haman, because my... That would go against what my God thinks. And so he refuses to do so. And in his arrogance, Haman then decides to plot against him. And he tries to murder Mordecai by coming against the whole of the Jewish people and saying, actually, he goes to the king and says, can we exterminate the whole of the Jewish people? And the king goes, yes. So awful, terrible moment that Haman's convinced, convinced King Xerxes that the exiled Jews were his enemies, and then hence they should all be killed. To sweeten the deal, Haman tells the king that all the Jewish wealth would be confiscated, and a certain portion of it would end up in the king's treasury. The king didn't really want to be bothered by details, and the king said in Esther three eleven, "The money and the people are both yours to do with as you see fit." So. In this moment, again, I, I mentioned about the weakness of the king. He just kind of rubs his hands, doesn't he? He's like, okay, get on with it. You're the number two. You do what you want. This isn't my problem. You crack on. So Haman issues a real royal decree that on March the 7th, less than a year away, the people of Persia had permission to kill every Jew without penalty, and they could take all of the Jews' possessions for themselves. This decree was sent out across 127 different provinces of persia from the borders of egypt to the borders of india so you can see what a huge and tragic moment this is the date has been set and time is now ticking this is the background to where we find ourselves when mordecai learns of all that's gone on he puts on sackcloth and ashes, which is a way in ancient culture of showing how incredibly upset you are about something. He's like, this is awful. And he goes all the way up to the king's gate, but he's not allowed to enter into the king's gate. And he makes this public demonstration of how deeply, deeply awful this is. Now, what's Kind of ironic is that Esther doesn't realize that this decree has actually been sent. And so she sees Mordecai out in the street, and she's like, what is going on with Mordecai? So she sends one of her servants to go and speak to Mordecai. Sorry. Um, And what followed was a flurry of couriered messages between the two. And I want to pick it up in chapter 4, verses 9 to 17. And this is where we're going to be kind of spending most of our time today. And I'm just going to read this to you. It should come up on the screen behind me. So Hathak, one of Esther's attendants, goes to find out what is troubling Mordecai. And it says this, He also gave him a copy of the text of the edict for their annihilation, which had been published in Susa, to show to Esther and explain it to her. And he told him to instruct her to go into the king's presence to beg for mercy and plead with him for her people. Hathak went back and reported to Esther what Mordecai had said. Then she instructed him to say to Mordecai, All the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law, that they be put to death unless the king extends the gold scepter to them and spares their lives. But 30 days have passed since I was called to go to the king. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer, Do not think that because you're in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. I and my attendants will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it's against the law. And if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went away and carried out all of Esther's instructions. It's a really powerful passage, actually. I've had the joy of being able to sit in it this week. Mordecai comes to Esther and says, because of where you are, and because of who you are, your place and your position in the royal household, you have to use any influence that you have to stop this. You have to do something. Esther, you cannot just stand by and watch this happen. You have got to use whatever you have. So you can imagine this message from Mordecai coming back to Esther, and Esther ticking off on her fingers the reasons to stay silent. It's against the law. It's been 30 days Since the king so much as gave me a look. So let's be honest, that means he's not been interested in me recently. The king's probably in a foul mood. He will probably kill me and remember Vashti and what happened to her, the previous queen. I mean, she's got this context. Do not think... Because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows that but you've come to your royal position for such a time as this. This couple of verses by Mordecai is so brutal, isn't it? On the one hand, it's brutal. And on the other hand, it's really faith-filled. He's gone from sackcloth and ashes out in the street, to this point where he's declaring, oh, God is going to save the people anyway, Esther. <laughs> That's what he's saying, isn't he? He's like, if you remain silent this time, relief and deliverance of the Jews will arise from another place. God is going to act. So Mordecai, this is such a faith-filled moment from Mordecai. But actually, Esther, this is, this is your moment. God's brought you here for this time. An even better translation, I think, of the verses. Who knows if you are not brought to the royal position because of this? Different way of translating this passage. With an Old Testament book, you always have to be careful in terms of when you read stuff into it and then extrapolate it into our context. Do you know what I mean? It's like, well, we can just take that straight out of here. But I do think there are a couple of threads that I just want to draw out from these passages. The first is this, God will use us in the places that he puts us. God will use us in the places that he puts us. Our theology in the vineyard is that God's kingdom is always working. God is always moving. I said right at the beginning, didn't I? We can't always see it. We can't always feel it. But that does not mean that God is not always working. I remember actually having a chat with Steve Nicholson, who was here for the Kingdom Pursuit. And we were having a really vulnerable conversation. And he said at one point, I think I asked him the question, you know, how do you deal with really tough times? And he's like, do you know what, James? There was a three-year period where I didn't feel like I heard the Lord at all. I was like, oh, wow. And you might sit there being, oh, you know, Steve Nicholson, you know, super prophetic, super man of God, here's... God in every moment and every time. And he was just like, there have been times of deep silence or what I've experienced as deep difficulty and deep silence. I was like, oh. The title of my talk is God is Always Working. And we're not just waiting for a future destination in heaven, but God is restoring. You know, our vision as a church is restoring the nation, renewing the nation, restoring the city, renewing the nation. And He wants to use us. And I I just want to say today that our jobs are hugely important. I just want to say that. I'm very aware, obviously, I work for the church, and you might sit there thinking, oh, what does he know about my life? But what I want to say today is our jobs are hugely important, and the places and the families that God has put us is wider than that. And I just want to speak into work for a second. Dick Lucas is a British minister, and he preached a sermon some years ago, on the story of Joseph and I think what he says here fits just as well with the story of Esther and it makes the same point listen carefully he says if you were go to a book table and see a biography with a title the man God uses or the woman God uses you would immediately think it was a story of a missionary a minister a specialist in some sort of spiritual work a pastor an evangelist or someone who leads bible studies at least would you not that's where you go In fact, what you have here in the story of Joseph he's talking about and in the story of Daniel and the story of Esther is a highly successful secular leader. He's not a preacher. He's not a missionary. He's not leading a Bible study. Dick says in the long term, he thinks being a preacher, missionary or leading a Bible study group is in many ways easier. This is a preacher talking. There's a certain spiritual glamour in doing it. What we do each day is easier to discern in that sense. It's more black and white and it's not so grey. And so it is often hard to get Christians to see that God is willing not just to greatly use men and women in ministry, but in law, in medicine, in business, in the arts. And I want to go on from that in caring, in serving, and in unseen places. It's not even just these highly respected careers. My point is that God will use us where he places us. In our ordinary day, ordinary lives, that's where God uses us. I think about my wife, Jen. You know, my wife, Jen, is, for those of you who don't know, she's a GP. And she, since the age of 14, has felt called to be a GP, you know, in medicine. And it's really funny. We've been on this journey, and there's always been this draw, you know, and people are like, Jen, when are you going to spend more time in the church? And she's like, Never. And I, and I don't mean that in any sense of the word. I just mean that in the sense that she is called to be a medic. And that's on her. And that is a God-honoring call that she's called to be there. It's no lesser call. It's her call. And therefore, where God calls us is where God calls us. And he will use us where he calls us. And therefore, I would never want it to be said in, a, in our context that there are higher callings than other callings I feel deeply called to the church it's no higher or lesser it's just what the Lord has for me but that but I realize that's not most people in our church and for you I just want to really encourage you in your work today and say it's it's really and even if it's not a job but it's actually it's looking after the family it's looking after your kids it's looking after your elderly relative like whatever it is if God has placed you there that's where God has placed you and so I just want you to hear that today. And as we look at the story of Esther, it's funny, I've just been wrestling with that. I bet we sit there and go, oh, wasn't it amazing that Esther was the queen? Actually, what she was called into was probably pretty grim, wasn't it? You know, when you stop and think about it, that she, the king probably had a massive harem that he was waiting for. And, you know, she says in the story, I hadn't been called to see him for 30 days. That means she's probably out of favor in some way. And all that going on is that Esther, I don't think she necessarily was like, yes, I've made it, I'm the queen. I think we often read the story thinking that. I'm like, oh, poor old Esther. That's a really hard role. But actually, the Lord had placed her there for that time and that moment. God will use us in the places he puts us. Now, Esther has so little power in the story. The king had all of the power. And she did have influence because she was married to the king, but really her power was so limited that she couldn't even come in front of the king without being asked, without fearing for her life. That's how little power she had. It could cost her everything. So Mordecai delivers this challenge to Esther. Do not sit on the sidelines and watch this happen, Esther. And Mordecai opens a window and sheds a divine light into Esther's world. You are here for a reason, he said. Your life is part of a plan. You are placed here on purpose for a purpose. And I love, love, love her response. And I want you, my challenge to you is to sit in Esther's response this week as you go away from here. Verses 15 to 17, there is absolute gold in here. Because in this, we see her strength, her wisdom, her relationship with the Lord, her surrender. She says this, Then Esther sent her reply to Mordecai after this brutal confrontation from Mordecai. Go gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it's against the law. And if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went away and carried out Esther's instructions. If the story was being told in a Hollywood way, Esther would arrive in front of the king and it would be her sheer beauty. It would be the shallow moment, wouldn't it? It's like the king's wowed by Esther's beauty. I'm not saying her beauty didn't allow her to get into that position but it's actually her depth and her wisdom and her godliness that makes the difference. That she's like, she sends out an SOS. Everybody has got to pray. We've got to beat this thing with prayer and fasting, three-day fast. And then I'm willing to do what the Lord's asked me today, but not until I've prepared the ground. Because I'm not going in there. I know that I could die in this moment. Therefore, I'm going to call together everybody that I know to break through in spiritual warfare. We've been talking about that as a church, haven't we? To step in. It's like to get, you know, Simon Gilbo, I just remember him being like, to get on the front foot, <laughs> to get on the front foot. It's like actually we're in a kingdom confrontation and the tools that Esther have been given are the weapons of warfare are in the spirit. She fights in the spirit. I love it. Max Licardo says this, he says, rather than rush into the throne room of Xerxes, she humbled herself and stepped into the throne room of God. I'm going to say that again rather than rush into the throne room of xerxes she humbled herself and stepped into the throne room of god in this moment we just see who esther really is yes she's beautiful but she's so much more she's godly she's brave her identity is secure i will call a fast we will pray i will step into the throne room and if i perish i perish In the throne room, I think a couple of things happen. The first is this. And when I'm talking about the throne room, I'm talking about God's throne room. Firstly, we understand grace, grace, grace. That's what happens when we get into the throne room. Grace, grace, grace. Mordecai is saying, you didn't get here except by your beauty. Your beauty wasn't something you earned. It was given to you. This door of opportunity wasn't something that you produced. And Esther could have said, just like many of us would, but I worked hard and I earned it. That's generally most people's feeling (laughs) in most of our contexts. It's like, yeah, but I earned this. It's like, we have not understand the grace of the Lord. We have not understand how he has enabled us to be in the places and positions that we have. How he has orchestrated things. How he's been working behind the scenes. We think it is all about us. And the Lord's like, you do not understand. What happens when you get in the throne room as you sit there and go, it's grace, grace, grace. My gifts, my abilities, my talent, my family. It's your grace. It's your grace. It's your grace. It shifts us. I felt that like I'd finished my talk and I, and I felt like the Lord speak to me just as I was doing my hair this morning. Uh, I genuinely had washed it. So that's what I mean when I say I was doing my hair or what's left of it before any of you. He said this, like this is just a side note. God... He doesn't only use our gifts and our talents and our families and all of those things he also uses our pain I felt like the Lord really speak to me just as I was like oh he also uses our pain and the places of lack and the places of brokenness because he's a God who redeems and I'm aware some of you are like I have too much pain and I am too broken and I would want to say to you today that the Lord will use your pain if you let him redeem it he will not if it is not redeemed It has to be brought into the light. Often the the places where we minister most powerfully is out of our area of greatest brokenness. We can disqualify ourselves and I'm just saying God will use everything that we bring to him. Our gifts, our talents, but he will also bring our pain. But it has to be redeemed pain. Grace, grace, grace. Secondly, the drive is not Esther, it's Jesus. That's what we have to be careful about in Old Testament books that we sit there and we're like, I just want to be more like Esther. Like, no, you don't want to be more like Esther. You want to be more like Jesus. It's not live like Esther, our discipleship framework, just to be clear. Live like Esther. Because the truth is, none of us are probably going to encounter the same things that Esther encountered. Oh, you know it's such a unique story. The key is being willing to surrender our position, our success and our glory, because otherwise it owns us. What I I mean by that is, many of you in this room will do important things. <laughs> we all do important things, but you know what I mean, in terms of the world's view of success many of you would be quite successful. But what I'd want to say to you is that the Lord wants to redefine your definition of success. Because what the world defines as success is always more, more, more. It's more influence, it's more power. It's more. But that's not the kingdom definition of success. And actually what, People get wrong sometimes is when they sit there and they're like, I just want to be more influential. And I just, I'm just like, I just think that's the wrong drive. If it's what Jesus has put in front of you, absolutely yes. But it's not about you and it's about his glory. And we have to be really careful about what we think is success. And I think that we have to redefine it in kingdom terms success is faithfulness. There is no other definition of success in, in the kingdom. It's to be faithful to the voice of Jesus, to the ways of Jesus, to the word of Jesus. That's success. I have to take that definition of success when I come into ministry. What's kingdom success? It's not the same as the world's success. It's not more. It's not bigger. It's not better. It's not brighter. It's faithfulness. If this community becomes more faithful, then that's successful. That's really hard to measure, isn't it? But let's be really careful about what we think success is because generally we have been in a goldfish bowl for far too long. And therefore, if we were not careful, we will move towards a definition of success that is not kingdom success. Our drive is not Esther. Let's just be careful about that. It is Jesus. Esther becomes a person of greatness not by trying to become a person of greatness. (laughs) And we will become a person of greatness not by trying to become a person of greatness but by serving the one who said, for your sake, Father, thy will be done. It's different, isn't it? So just in finishing... God is always working, whether you can see it, whether you can feel it, whether you walked in here and you're like, I don't know where you are, Lord. He is always working. God will use us in the places he puts us. And if you are working today or you're a mom or dad looking after your children, whatever the work the Lord has given you to do, do it brilliantly as if serving the Lord. And then we have this throne room identity. We understand grace, grace, grace. And the drive is not Esther, it's Jesus. So why don't we stand and I'll just pray.